You know success when you see it. Or you think you do. The people in the spotlight. But what about those small business masterminds who succeed at making their money work harder? They do that by having a business bank account with QuickBooks Money, which now earns 5% annual percentage yield. Making your money work as hard as you do? That's how you business differently. Learn more about QuickBooks Money at quickbooks.com slash 5APY. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes earn APY. APY can change at any time. What could you do if your data was working for you and not against you? With Bloomberg delivering enterprise data directly to your systems, you get easy access to the details you want, optimized for higher level analysis, and financial data experts committed to helping you maximize your every move. Our data is made for more so you can show the world what you're made of. Visit Bloomberg.com slash Enterprise Data to learn more. Labour has never done well in a UK election without doing really well in Scotland. We need deposit ATMs and we need withdrawal ATMs and we need a law that means that businesses have to accept cash. UK workers have had the most bargaining power essentially since the 1970s because the jobs market is so tight. Can Britain actually afford to maintain a global military presence? You're listening to Bloomberg UK Politics. I'm Ewan Potts. And I'm Stephen Carroll. You and the universe has gifted you a gift today yes. a new poll some numbers to look at I, your favorite i'm excited you can tell so actually quite an eye-popping bit of polling today the headline is the conservatives are losing more 2019 voters to reform uk than to labor oh so this is a survey carried out by YouGov for sky news only one in 10 voters who supported the tories last time have switched directly to voters according to this poll 12 so directly to labor yeah 12 yeah. percent have switched to reform uk which is hmm. does not poll very highly uh, broadly uh, and only 40 percent of the party's 2019 voters of course the tories did sweep up at the last election say they're planning to vote conservative at the next time and a quarter say they don't know so there are lots of voters uh, still in play here yeah, look, it it is interesting to see where people go, but I suppose perhaps reflects the uh, Conservative Party's challenges as well as to how, what, as it tries to retain the voters that are going to stay with them, the fact that it's got 40%, I suppose, will be comfort to some, that there's still 40% <laughs> people who are going to vote Conservative. But this idea that I suppose that it speaks to how we may see more of a shift, perhaps, to policies that are closer to the sort of things that reform sp- espouses if they want to hold on to that as well. And I'm sure in Conservative Party headquarters, the details of this poll being raked over very crucially. I mean, we're obviously fascinated by all polls because we love the numbers but the uh, idea I suppose also of trying to figure out where these voters go because the 2019 result was exceptional uh, so then it's a question of how this plays out when we start to think about the next election. Yeah, of course, in 2019, the Conservatives gathered loads of voters who've never voted them before and in loads of places where they've never voted Conservative before. And what happens to them will, of course, be crucial. There's actually a very good bit of news, I think, for the Conservatives in this. It wasn't the headline. It was buried a little bit further down. And amongst undecided Tory uh, voters from last time, Sunak gets a net positive rating of plus seven, which is quite interesting in itself, given his poor approval ratings in the Mm. wider electorate. But Keir Starmer scores a a shocking minus 61 amongst undecided voters. And and, and that is is a really, really bad number. And I think, actually, if you look back at some of the history of uh, of polling, you'll find that that approval ratings for leaders are quite a good uh, predictor of of where elections are going to Mm. go. Of course, this is only amongst a subset of, of, of voters from last time. But I think Labour will be... 
Labour's eyes will be a little bit kind of open to that and they'll be like, gosh, that's that's actually quite a bad number. Mm, food for thought for everyone who's trying to strategise now. Of course, it is only one poll, as we must remind ourselves constantly. Um, let's turn to something else, though, now. The COVID inquiry has unearthed some skeletons of the Boris Johnson administration in the testimony that it's heard this week. Uh, the latest from former Deputy Cabinet Secretary Helen McNamara giving evidence that speaks about a macho culture contaminated by ego that clouded the government's response to the pandemic. Let's take a listen to some of what she had to say to the COVID inquiry. There was a sort of de facto assumption that we were going to be great without any of the hesitancy or questioning, unbelievably bullish, we're going to be great at everything approach is not a smart mentality to have. Well, our UK government editor, Emily Ashton, has been across uh, all of this. Emily, thanks for joining us uh, on the podcast today. Now, these hearings have been going on uh, since uh, June, haven't they, in the COVID inquiry? And most of us have only really been catching snatches of it so far. That It's been very much making the news uh, this week. Remind us uh, how important this investigation is. Yeah, so this is one of the most extensive public inquiries ever in the UK. And obviously the aim is to find out what happened when the pandemic hit, the government's response, the public health response, what happened in the NHS and the care homes, and crucially how we learn lessons, how things can improve for the future. But it's also important for the public, I think. You know, many people lost loved ones and and they really want to know exactly how this was handled at the top. It's such an interesting reflection because for some people, of course, they very much moved on from the times of the pandemic and don't want to think about it. But as you say, there are an awful lot of people, given the the death tolls and, you know, hundreds of thousands to over 200,000. In fact, there are so many people who were directly affected. And as you say, we'll be very much listening out to hear those answers. What's been covered broadly, Emily, up until now in the inquiry? Yeah, so what we've got is it's split into kind of four different modules looking at different aspects of the pandemic. And we've had one, uh, which is resilience and preparedness. That's when we saw David Cameron, for example, he was being grilled over austerity. Did austerity measures kind of um, cause problems for this? Um, Now we're on to this module that's UK decision making and political governance. And this is why this week in particular is very important. exciting to journalists and to you know to 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 people watching because we're seeing lots of insider information from number 10 from inside government as to how things work from people that we really never usually hear from um and later on you have two more modules the impact on the healthcare system and vaccines and therapeutics but so far yeah we've heard from scientists that we should have locked down earlier that the uk maybe should lock down at about two weeks earlier than it did in that very first lockdown in March 2020. And we've also mainly learned um, in this module about the chaos, that level of chaos and dysfunction under Boris Johnson's administration um, and heard from officials who are highly frustrated at his leadership um, with a few of them calling him a trolley that kind of veered from one decision to another. Yeah, talking about you mentioned insiders, what do we hear from Dominic Cummings? Obviously, that was good, uh, was billed uh, as, as it would be juicy, and he had a lot of strong things to say, didn't he? Yeah, Dominic Cummings um, was Boris Johnson's chief advisor at the time, very highly controversial figure, had been involved in the Leave campaign, Brexit. But he didn't hold back in his evidence, called the Cabinet Office a dumpster fire, a bombsite, um, said no one was properly driving the government machine in spring 2020. Um, he called, uh, as, I, as I mentioned, he called Boris Johnson this trolley. And he, he denied that he contributed to a toxic atmosphere in Downing Street, but actually... 
we saw expletive filled and misogynistic messages that he sent about colleagues and on that day of evidence um which was tuesday i think he we also saw diary entries from patrick valance now he was the chief scientific advisor at the time and he kept a diary which was, has been very useful for this inquiry and uh, he talked about the prime minister being obsessed with older people um accepting their fate so he was saying you know look older people are going to die anyway effectively why aren't we doing more to help young people in the economy? And it, all this stuff is very, very strong. Um, and, and we also heard from Lee Kane, who was the former communications chief, who also um, was highly critical of the prime minister's leadership. Emily, if expectations were extremely high around those two figures appearing before the inquiry, perhaps Helen McNamara's more understated language certainly uh, used in her testimony, but was perhaps even more shocking. She was the deputy uh, chief cabinet secretary, deputy cabinet secretary, excuse me, and the, the most senior female civil servant in Downing Street at the time, and and really her her testimony quite shocking. I, I agree. And I, I think it was more shocking because she's quite a measured person. Um, she wasn't this kind of celebrity type figure that Dominic Cummings has become. Nobody really, most people wouldn't have heard of her before this. Um, so because of that kind of measured, she was the second most senior official in the civil service at the time. I think people were listening to what she had to say. And actually, she described number 10 under Boris Johnson as being macho and toxic and bullish. Um, including the then health secretary Matt Hancock, um, and described these handbrake t- handbrake turns in policy from the PM. But actually, the m- the most compelling bit of evidence for me was that women uh, were ignored in policy making. Female staff, there was a lack of thinking, therefore, because these voices weren't being heard about domestic abuse, about vulnerable people, about how they were being, um, how they should be treated during the pandemic, and how that should be handled. Um, and there was a disproportionate attention to male pursuits, she said, like shooting and football, which is really shocking. And she talked about the privilege of the people inside number 10 and how there was a very narrow perspective and how they probably couldn't understand what most people were going through. And I think that that really shone a light on what was happening there at the time. Of course, one of the uh, most significant appearances, well, perhaps the most significant one we're, we're looking forward to is the Prime Minister, of course, the Chancellor, uh, at the time. Uh, he did get a mention earlier in the week, didn't he? Here's a question where he came up from Hugo Keith, who's the lead counsel to the inquiry. During the, the course of the, the, this WhatsApp stream, we can also see a reference to Dr. Death, the Chancellor, and Dame Angela McLean saying, in ONS, you'd see it. Did you understand that those were references to the Eat Out to Help Out campaign, of which you've spoken about in moderately honestly it's so long ago i don't know all right but it could well be so uh, reference to rishi sunak's flagship uh, eat out to help out policy in the uh, uh, summer of 2020 that was king's council hugo keith asking that question of professor john edmonds from the london school of hygiene and tropical medicine emily uh, a lot to look forward to the prime minister's, prime minister's appearance what should we be expecting uh, from him i mean this all this does matter for Rishi Sunak as much as he would like to pin all this on the previous administration and Boris Johnson. And clearly a lot of that is true that Boris Johnson 
um, oversaw this culture. But we mustn't forget that Rishi Sunak was Chancellor of the Exchequer at the time. He was at the heart of government. And he brought in the furlough scheme. And most controversially, as you say, this Eat Out to Help Out scheme, which subsidised restaurants and cafes and encouraged people to go out and spend money and um, circulate in bars and eat out. Um, Now, scientists were very critical because they said this was spreading the disease at the wrong time. This was the summer of 2020, and they said it was too early to do that. And as you hear, one government scientist called him Dr. Death. Um, And we we have also heard from people like Lee Kane, who said that was the wrong policy at the time, and was sending the wrong message, crucially, to people who were trying trying to tell them to be cautious. Um, But more broadly, you know, Rishi Sudak is now in charge as prime minister of this government machine that clearly didn't work when people needed it most. And there's not a lot of proof that anything much has changed. And with an election coming up next year, he's tried to present himself as this change candidate. But I'm not sure he really can remove himself from that the last Tory administration that easily and say, oh, it's all down to Boris Johnson, because ultimately trust in government has been hit. And I don't think that's that's easily solved. Yeah, I think that's a really interesting point, because while many people might view this as being referring to a past administration, as you say, Rishi Sunak, and and his decisions going to be very much in focus when he appears before the inquiry. Boris Johnson also too expected uh, to appear. What should we be expecting to hear from him and other notable names? Boris Johnson and Matt Hancock are due to give evidence as well as part of this module. We think that will be uh, either later this month or in December. Um, but clearly, Boris Johnson, there will be a lot of questions. I don't know how many days of evidence he's expected to, to speak, uh, but there will be a lot of questions for him. And he will, you know, give as robust a defence as he can. Um, but also, I think, look out for in those in those pieces of evidence from all those three figures, criticism of Rishi Sunak during the Conservative leadership contest of last year, the very first one during the summer, opposite Liz Truss, when he was trying to reach out to those Conservative members and say, actually, I I wanted to ease those restrictions. I think the scientists were given too much power. And he said that very, uh, very strongly last summer. And I think that could get uncomfortable for him when those comments are read out to him at the inquiry. Emily, this is very interesting for what it tells us about that period in our lives, you know, perhaps the most significant news event of our lifetimes. But it is also interesting to, to get an insight into the workings of government, isn't it? Do, do you think this is going to change uh, any public perceptions, any, any, any polling? I mean, clearly a lot of this stuff is very damaging for the Conservatives, but do you think anybody's going to be swayed by it? I think you're right that a lot of this has already come out, that uh, maybe it won't change minds about the Conservative government, but I, clearly it's not a good thing. Rishi Sunak to cope with these headlines on a daily basis. And at the moment, they might not be personally about Rishi Sunak. It's more about the government that he now leads, but it's still about the Conservative government. Um, And I think the more you hear these negative stories about just how badly the government was run at a time of crisis um, by the Conservative Party, with a huge election to come up within a year, I mean, it can only be bad news. Uh, for Rishi Sunak here Um, and he needs to do everything he can to really distance himself from the whole thing but I I think he can only do that in a very limited way Okay, Emily Ashton, our UK government reporter thanks so much for joining us with the details of the latest evidence we've heard at the COVID-19 inquiry
Now, Stephen, it's the second day of the government's Artificial Intelligence Safety Summit. But even with the likes of uh, US Vice President Kamala Harris attending and a few world leaders, not perhaps as many as the UK would like, but certainly a fair few, it seems that Elon Musk has been getting a lot of the attention, doesn't it? Yeah, I mean, this probably shouldn't come as a surprise, given that how much attention Elon Musk attracts for himself and also tends to garner in these circles as well. But I was interested to read some of the comments reporting from our colleagues who've been speaking to those who were inside Bletchley Park for this event, saying that Elon Musk was mobbed and held court with delegates from tech companies and civil society uh, in between the sessions. Um, but they did point out that they're during... Because, the, you know, the sessions were all discussing different aspects of the, the AI... Uh, I suppose, challenge, dilemma, however you want to talk about it. And the one session that Elon Musk was at where they talked about the risks of losing control of AI, he was said to have quietly listened, um, although the group itself was nicknamed the group of death, which I think probably <laughs> uh, explains some, well, some of the dilemma, and actually this is something that we've been reporting on, some of the dilemma that's of, of what's being talked about here is this division between the so-called AI doomers who are focusing on the big existential worst case scenario risks of this technology versus more immediate risk that others are keen to focus on, which is this idea of things like fueling discrimination or misinformation that could come from AI as well. And that's been sort of central to the discussions that are still ongoing in Bletchley Park. Yeah, we had a great conversation actually on the podcast last week about AI, which is worth worth listening back to. Something interesting to look forward to this evening actually is the PM will be meeting Musk and there's going to be a 45-minute uh, streamed Q&A session where apparently both men are going to ask each other questions, which sounds kind of somewhat chaotic but uh it will be interesting to see the world's richest man and uh, the prime minister in discussion yes indeed well bloomberg editorial writer Therese raphael is with us in studio um to talk more about this Therese, great to have you on the program so looking at we're, we're into the second day of the summit now does it look like it's going well to you Look, I think the government will be reasonably happy with um, the fact that, you know, the conversation is now around um, AI safety, that the UK is in the mix. Um, you know, I think it, it would be an exaggeration to say that the, 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 that the UK is kind of driving uh, this conversation. It's one that's happening anyhow uh, in Washington, Brussels, you know, it, you know China is is uh, also have, you know, d- doing its own regulation of the technology. But, you know, just the fact of gathering the CEOs, having Elon Musk in town, uh, the US Vice President making a speech, not in Bletchley, but in London. So uh, one, one could say close enough. Um, I guess that will give them you know, some level of satisfaction. Of course, this is an area of policy that Sunak himself is you know, clearly very interested in, very comfortable with. Um, and it probably beats a lot of the headlines that they've, you know, been grappling with in recent weeks. I think he's pro- they're probably quite happy to have the conversation turning on these issues, um, you know, even if it doesn't quite live up to some of the hype. Obviously, this is an enormously complex area, which I think it's probably fair to say most politicians haven't really got their heads around yet, uh, and, and fair enough. What, what did you make of the communique that came out at the start? Does that provide any kind of basis for any kind of global agreement? Yeah, not really. I mean, the communique, I think, really reflects, uh, you I know... I think the use of the word communique somewhat <laughs> elevates the idea <laughs> of... Exactly. Uh, like in other places, I think it'll probably just called an agenda. But yeah. It could almost have been written by ChatGPT, right? You know, here are, the, here, are, here are the potential sort of risks and we're kind of worried about it. And, you know, we're, we're going to keep talking about these things and, uh, you know, with a view towards safety. So um, they, they might have done better not to have 
some kind of a joint statement. I, I suppose it will be seen as, you know, something of an achievement that, that there was some Chinese representation in there. But really, I think most eyes were on uh, the White House executive order, uh, the creation of an AI safety institute in the U.S. I think, you know, that and, and you know, the EU's AI Act, which, you know, maybe we'll talk about, is another area where I think, you know, players in the sector, both um, uh, you know, the creators of these models, but particularly and maybe more importantly, the businesses that will use them and deploy them are going to be looking at where um, regulation has teeth, not on these broad general principles, which isn't to say we shouldn't be talking about safety. Um, I think it's, you know, we, we want to research areas where uh, AI has a potential to do harm. But, um, you know, we, we just can't regulate at the speed at which this technology is developing and being deployed. And the risk of trying to do so is that you end up, uh, you know, deterring use um, by businesses and not capturing the productivity gains and you end up stifling innovation. And I think I think Sunak is very aware of that. And he, you know, has has gone down the road of a safety summit, which focuses on the risks and the the problems. But, you know, I think his instincts are also, uh, you know, to to keep regulation uh, in some ways as light as possible until we actually know that there's a, a target that stays still fast enough for a regulation to actually, you know, capture and 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 manage the risk. But that's a really interesting point because I was I was going to ask you whether or not you think Rishi, Rishi Sunak was, was crying into his can of Coke when he saw the executive order from the Biden yeah. administration sort of getting ahead of his big summit which he'd put so much effort uh, into. But is this actually an opportunity for the UK to perhaps lay out a different path and as you say engage more with stakeholders before getting involved in the regulation arm? Is this sort of opening a way for the UK to provide leadership in this area? Yeah, I mean, I think there's an argument that the UK has the ear of um, uh, of the tech world to some extent um, and has a good good enough relationship with uh, both you know the US administration uh, to you know still some some kind of dialogue with the EU that you know one could arguably say is on the mend and you know managed to get China in the room I think it's you know we, we shouldn't necessarily take that too far. There are a lot of forums that are looking at this. The G7, you know, had the Hiroshima uh, communique. There's OECD is looking at this. There's US-EU dialogue that I think is going to be very crucial. So, you know, this is one of many different, um, you know, forum that that are looking at uh, AI safety, AI regulatory issues. Um, I think you know there there is a danger that you end up having um, maybe different standards and different definitions of risk and uh, approaches. And you know, so they they need they really need to you know maybe try to harmonize some of these at some point. But we're really at the very early stages, and you know, Sunak will be happy to maybe have a, a, a you know slight first mover advantage in having gotten there and you know hosted the first uh, safety summit. But I think you know if we look a year or you know two month uh, two years down the road, I'm not sure that you know we'll say this was a landmark event. Because there are steps being taken as well, aren't there? You, you mentioned. Um Joe Biden's executive order. And of course, the EU is already taking steps to, to regulate AI, isn't it? Do you, do you think the UK is a little bit behind on this or is that is that unfair? No, I think they're very different approaches. So the, the EU has an approach to risk that that you know is, is often referred to as a precautionary principle. And, and it, it basically says, well, you know, if a potential harm could happen, we need to 
regulate um, against it and make sure that it doesn't eventuate. And I think, you know, what we're seeing on AI, sort of similar to GDPR, where there was a void in regulation in the U.S., it allowed the EU to come in and fill the gap. And uh, the EU is also, I think, approaching this AI um, regulation I think initially in a spirit of wanting to encourage take up and innovation among European businesses, which are dreadfully behind in technology uptake in general. But what's happened over time, I'm told um, uh, by those watching it closely, is that it's kind of um, this metaphor was used by Zach Myers at the Center for European Reform when we were speaking recently, said it's become like a Christmas tree where everyone throws on different baubles. So Mm -hmm. there's not been a lot of public engagement. A lot of it's happening behind closed doors. And there's a danger that that, you know, regulation that is too vague, doesn't I, doesn't define AI clearly enough, uh, doesn't define where uh, the responsibility lies for monitoring um, the, the way AI is used, to, used clearly enough, is going to end up, like GDPR, imposing costs, adding grit to the system, um, and, you know, really slowing down the adoption. And, you know, I, I think this has come up over and over again in your podcast and discussion. There has to be a balance between the worries about the risks and the opportunities, which are just enormous, and a realism about, you know, at what speed is it is it reasonable to try to, to regulate? And I yeah. think the EU may be getting the wrong side of this. Um, and, you know, as often is the case with the EU being in danger of over-regulating. But we'll see. This is not an act that's on the books yet. They're hoping to finish it by the end of the year. Yeah. Just to bring it back to, to sort of the prime minister and the, the political situation here, what looks like success for Rishi Sunak here, Therese? Um, I think, you know, there can only be, um, you know, short term and long term success, right? The the short term success is he's 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 in the headlines. He's there, you know, for a whole week. Imagine that we've hardly talked about problems within the Conservative Party. Um, It's not something the Labour Party is that much to say on. You know, he's in a, you know, in a in a political moment where it's kind of a survival game. So I think short term, he'll take this as a win. Longer term, the UK is a player in AI. It is not a major player or a a driver of regulation. Mm -hmm. And it will have a seat at the table and a voice. And I think, um, you know, that's the realistic uh, uh, demand for that. And it's not clear that anything this government does, um, you know, will, you know, will be sustained uh, on the other side of the next election. So they're obviously going to be careful there. But he started the conversation in this country. And I think he's also in line with public opinion, which is showing that people are quite concerned about safety risks. That might be a sort of loop of, you know, this is what gets the headlines. Therefore, that's what people are worried about. Therefore, that's where the government is focusing. And I'm not sure that's a healthy thing. But he'll he'll, he'll take this as a a short-term win, I think. Okay. Therese Raphael, Bloomberg editorial writer, thank you so much for joining us with your insights on the AI Safety Summit. That's it from us for today. If you like the programme, don't forget to subscribe. Give it five stars so other people can find it on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen. This episode was produced by James Walcock and our audio engineer was Maruval Hussain. I'm Ewan Potts. And I'm Stephen Carroll. We'll be back with more tomorrow. This is Bloomberg. Bloomberg UK Politics. Listen weekdays at noon on DAB Digital Radio in London. Hi, I'm Ron Krzyzewski, Chairman and CEO of Stiefel. Financial advisors, let's face it, if you're not growing your practice, you're losing market share. 
Stiefel is a growing entrepreneurial, advisor-centric firm built for successful advisors like you. There's a reason why 148 financial advisors joined Stiefel last year. Come join us and find out why Stiefel is the firm where success meets success. Visit www.choosestifel.com. Stiefel Nicholas and Company Incorporated, member SIPC and NYSE. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival.